It's good to be back. I've been traveling last couple weeks. I was traveling uh, in Europe. I'm part of a a learning fellowship through Gordon Conwell Seminary, and there was a group of pastors. We're all New England pastors, and we do reading together, and we gather periodically to have discussions and talk with people. Uh, but our learning fellowship included this two-week trip uh, to Europe. Actually, if you could pull the, the picture back up there. So we were in the first half of the trip. We were in the former Yugoslavia, so we're in Croatia and Bosnia-Herzegovina. Um, and we were talking to um, church leaders and learning about uh, these places. I mean, they've seen everything has been different there's Catholics and Orthodox and Muslims and they've seen communism and they've seen war and they it's just uh, what, what is it like to minister in that type of a context and we visited a seminary that our church has been supporting for many years so I actually went in to see this there's a church there it actually almost looks like a synagogue on the front it's because it was a synagogue and it was uh, the this church took uh, amicably took over it didn't forcefully take it, but they, uh, um, this Jewish community gave it to the, to the church to, to use. So I sat in the pews in that very church in Croatia, and then the, that other building, which is actually right across the street, they, those buildings face each other, um, where the seminary and their library is, a very important institution to train church leaders and uh, for education and learning. And um, So it, it's, it was great to be there and learn about that. And then the second half of my trip, we flew to Prague in Czech Republic, which is known as one of the uh, most secular places in the world. And so learning about how Christians are ministering in a very increasingly secular context. And as New England pastors, that's actually quite relevant as our uh, region of the country and our part of the world is increasingly uh, less religious and more secular in mindset. How do we speak the good news of Jesus and the love of Jesus Christ and the truth of Jesus Christ into that type of a setting. So we're learning from uh, pastors and campus ministers and uh, those working with college students and different expressions of faith. So um, I'm going to share a little bit about some insights from that uh, today as it relates to this message. But in the weeks to come, I've got a ton of stories and things that I've seen and I've been thinking about. So and my head's kind of spinning and a little jet lag. So um, we'll, we're all in this together. Uh, but I do enjoy traveling somewhat, but I don't love being away from my family quite that long. Uh, for two weeks seemed like a long time, and so it is uh, good to be home, to be with my family, to be with my church today, and worshiping together, to sleep in my own bed, and eat food that is predictable, and um, to be settled back. So speaking of travels and journeys, we're continuing to study through the book of Joshua. This is God's people, the Israelites. They were a people who were journeying for a long time, 40 years of wilderness journeying, and they're finally ready to settle down in a land that God had led them to, a, God, a land that God had promised to them, and they're going to finally be able to settle down and have a home and, and just be and enjoy this land instead of just wandering around. And so these people have just miraculously crossed the Jordan River. We looked at that last week for those who were here, and now they're going to they're going to they're going to go into battle. They're going to take the city of Jericho. We're going to look at that next week. But they, right before they go into battle, they do two things that are a little strange. The first thing is that they circumcise all the men and boys, which honestly doesn't make a lot of practical sense when you're looking to go to war, that you essentially cripple your, your army or temporarily cripple them. Um, so you wouldn't actually, you wouldn't do that unless it was crucially important that you do that, and it was. 
And we're going to take a look at that. Uh, and the second thing they did was they stopped and they had a commemorative feast. They celebrated a holiday. They celebrated the Passover together, which also was not something that you'd think that you would do to prepare an army uh, to go into battle. But that's exactly what they did uh, to get ready for this. But these two things that they did, they're not just, not just mere rituals. Uh, these are, yes, they're outward expressions of their faith that these people did, but it prepared their hearts spiritually to go to the place where God was leading them. So even though God was going to give them victory, God needed his people to be spiritually prepared for what he had in store for them. And so in the same way for us sitting here today, whatever you're going to face in the days to come and this week or beyond, God wants our hearts to be prepared for the things that he's leading us to. And God has given us outward expressions of our faith. We call them sacraments that we exercise, that things that we do that point to um, important spiritual realities in our life that help prepare us for our journey with God. And we want to be spiritually ready for those things, for the battles in our lives too. So let's pray as we approach this text together. So Father God, we, as we think of this week that we've come from, whatever we've experienced this past week, as we look ahead to what we'll experience tomorrow and through this next week, We pray that this time now is focusing on your word, that you would use that as preparation to prepare our hearts to experience you in the week to come, to thank you that you are with us every step in the week that is behind us, and that you'll be with us every step as we go forward. So we just submit ourselves to you and pray that you use this time for your glory and for our benefit, and we do pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, so the first thing they do is they, they circumcise all these men. What is going on here? This, is a, this practice was a sign that God gave his people a sign of a promise that he had made to them. So God went to a man named Abraham. We read about it in Genesis chapter 15. And he promised to bless him, to give him many offspring, to make him into a great nation, that the whole world would be blessed through this man. And then two chapters later in Genesis 17... He said, this act of circumcision is a sign, it's a symbol of that promise that I've made to you. And this is great. We're we're calling this whole sermon series, you know, Every Promise Fulfilled. This This is all about God's promises being fulfilled in the lives of his people. And we just stop here and I remind us that God's promises are always good. Everything that God promises is yes, it's amen, it is certain, God never fails, amen. We always remember that. And these people needed to remember that too. And this symbol, this sign reminded them that. It's a sign of fruitfulness, that God had promised offspring, that there would be descendants, that there would be generations. And so the sign of that promise goes right on the part of the anatomy that produces offspring as a reminder, so that makes sense that that's where that is. It's also a cutting sign. And that to the, to the people, God said, that's also a reminder to you that if you don't keep this covenant, you will be cut off from me. That it's, this is, I am making you these promises and, and I will, I'm going to be faithful to you and you're going to be faithful to this covenant and, and I will be your God and you will be my people. And so it's a beautiful symbol of that. It's a major identity marker for these people. They said, yes, this this sign, this symbol that we put on the bodies of all, all the men in our community, it, it, it's a sign that we are 
in line with Abraham, that we are living out God's promises and, and that we are identifying with that. And it was important in their day, and it was important even to this day. On Thursday, I was in, I was in Prague, and we went in, our group went and visited the Jewish quarter in Prague. And there's the oldest active, actively operating synagogue in the world right there in the Jewish quarter. It's called the Old New Synagogue. And it was built in the um, 13th century. And so there's older synagogues in the world, but this one is the one that's still continually active in use with the community. And our tour guide was a Jewish man, and we were asking him, we said, well, how is it that you've been able to maintain your identity as people of faith in a place that's seen uh, Jewish people displaced, you've seen wars, you've seen, miraculously this synagogue was never bombed out or, or burned, or in, even in World War II it was, it was protected, and it was kind of almost miraculous. But how is it that you've been driven out of this neighborhood, but you've rebuilt it, and all the buildings were torn down, and they've and there's other people groups there. How do you maintain your identity? And he, he thought about it for a minute. He said, well, we have the Torah. We have the law. We have the Ten Commandments that we live by. We eat kosher. We, and we have circumcision. And he mentioned that specifically as an identity marker that still binds their community together. So from the time of Abraham and at the time of Jesus and even till today, 4,000 years, this has been a major identity marker uh, for God's people who live under God's promises. So these people in Joshua's day, because they've been wandering through the wilderness, you know, I've been traveling for two weeks. I didn't cut my fingernails. I didn't trim my beard. I mean, these people were in the wilderness. They didn't have time or means to do sort of like minor surgery on all the men. So uh, this is a practical matter. In some ways, they hadn't yet done this. So they needed to do this to identify themselves in this way. But it was never meant to be simply an outward act or a surgical act outwardly. Uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 30, this is what the Bible says. It says, The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all your heart and with all your soul and live. That what it truly means to be God's people isn't this outward symbol, but it represents something that happens in the human heart. That we, that we are committed to God with all heart and soul. And that true life comes through that, not through these religious rituals. Uh, it's not the outward appearance that's important. It's what's inside. And again, as I was traveling around, in, especially in Prague, if you've ever been there, it's an amazing city. The architecture is just spectacular. They call it City of Spires. There's churches and cathedrals everywhere and Catholic churches, Protestant churches and towers and all these things. And you go into these churches and they are so spectacular, the paintings on the ceilings and the statues and so full and ornate. I thought our church is fancy. This church is not fancy. By European standards, this is just empty. This is an empty box. And as much as I like the, the nice touches and the light there and whatever, no, not fancy. This is, this is dull. But if you walk by this church two weeks ago on VBS week, I mean, there's kids bouncing around in here and praising God and dancing around the VBS and there was spaceships and all kinds of fun and Bible stories and crafts and games. And if you walk down the street, you would know that there's life in this church. And praise God. Because it doesn't matter how fancy or simple our building is, what's important is our faith lived out in community. And you go through these churches in Europe and they're just museums. They're just places for tourists to take pictures and 
you know, be all impressed with the architecture. And it was very impressive, actually very stirring in some ways. But many of these churches don't even have any uh, times of worship or gathering. Some of them have on occasion or on holidays, but in many ways they're just dead empty. And in the same way, God gave his people these religious practices to do, not because of the practice itself or the outward part of it, but the inward part, the spiritual part, is what's important. Now, uh, when Jesus came along, the early Christians had a kind of a tough decision to make. Is, is this identity marker that God gave Abraham and his descendants still our identity marker? Because uh, you know, Jesus fulfilled all of the obligations of God's covenant. And so now we have a new covenant in Jesus. So do we still need this thing? And the answer, you can read about it in Acts chapter 15. But the early Christians, empowered by the Holy Spirit, guided by his spirit, uh, decided, no, this is no longer a necessary identity marker that non-Jewish Christians don't need to go through circumcision. But baptism replaces circumcision. And the church taught that, and the scripture clearly says that in, in Colossians chapter 2. Um, Take a look at this verse. It says, In him, that's in Jesus, you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism. It says, Baptism is how we are identified with Christ. With, with, with this same idea. So baptism replaces circumcision. And that becomes a major identity issue for us as God's people, the act of baptism. Our association with God's covenant promises through Jesus. Jesus commanded all of his followers to that as they go and make other disciples, other followers of Jesus, that you need to be people who baptize all serious Christians and Christians baptize in different ways, different traditions, but all serious Christians baptize in one way or another. That is our identity with Christ. And it's so important that we identify ourselves with Jesus. This is the the most central part of our faith, that we are united to Jesus. So whether baptism is something, is a sign that you got when you were a baby, a young child, or whether it's something that you experienced later in your journey of faith, Uh, It is that identity marker. And our primary identity needs to be in Jesus. Jesus said the most important thing that we can live is to be people who love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That we are to be a people who have no other gods, that that we have one God and we, we know God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and that is our one God, and that is our identity, that we are his children, that we are loved by him, that we are saved by him, we put our whole faith in him. That is our identity. And there's other ways that we can form our identity. We can identify ourselves by, you know, through our work and our career. You can identify, you're, you can identify yourself with a family, or uh, you can identify yourself politically, or part of a nation. But our primary identity needs to be Jesus Christ. And when it's not, Everything gets thrown off. I think about ethnic identity and nationalistic identity. In the former Yugoslavia, that was huge. All of the wars, the breakup of Yugoslavia, all those wars were based on nationalistic identity. So Slobodan Milosevic, back in the late 80s, 90s, was really leveraging the people's um, ethnic and nationalistic identity against one another. 
And when you do that, and then when that gets, when your national identity and your religious identity get conflated, you know, I'm a Croat, I'm a Catholic, I'm a, you know, we're Serbs, we're Orthodox, you know, we're uh, Muslims in Bosnia, we're, and, and you get these, it gets really ugly. And people are willing to fight and die and kill one another, even killing your neighbor, fighting your neighbor, because of this nationalistic identity. And I, I, I highlight that because there's this sort of recently a, a rise in American nationalism and what's sometimes called Christian nationalism. And I've, I've talked about this before, where patriotism is good. We should, I would say it's good to be a patriotic American, for those of us who are Americans. Um, that's not a bad thing, but, when it, but nationalism is where it, become, it, it can become an identity that becomes an idol, that takes an inordinate place in our life that we would be willing to really harm other people or conflate our, um, conflate our faith with our national identity. And whatever your primary identity is, is typically something you're willing to die for. Um, and Jesus said, if you're going to follow me, you're going to take up your cross, and you've you, you got to be willing to die for me. You're going to give your life for me. That is your primary identity, not just our nation. You, we can love our nation uh, but not to confuse that with our love or replace that with our love for Christ. And that's so important. And we see examples of it in world history. And I saw it kind of up close in my recent journeys. So the question is, you know, do you root your primary identity in Jesus, that you are loved by Jesus, that you are part of God's kingdom through Jesus, and that um, through that, everything else is going to flow. As Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God. Seek first his righteousness and everything else, all that you need, uh, the, your, your daily needs, the, the needs of the government around you. The need, seek him first, and all these other things are going to fall into place. But when we seek other things first, it gets out of order and it goes bad. Uh, the outflow of this, in terms of the identity marker, is to be baptized. Most of you are. Uh, many of you are. If you have not been, whether you were baptized as a baby or, again, it happened later in life, uh, if, you're, if you ever consider being baptized, pray about that. Contact me. I'd like to talk to you about that. There's a couple of you I've talked to who desire baptism, and I want to do that. I need to schedule that. That's on me. I've, I put it off for various reasons, and so I'm sorry. I need to, because we need water. We need to gather water, and I want to gather everybody together, so I want to plan that. And um, so keep an eye on your weekly email. Sign up for them if you don't get them, and I, I'll get a date very, very soon, because we're going to do this. We're going to celebrate baptism together. We're going to keep our, we're going to identify ourselves with Jesus in this way. So that was the first thing. So for them, it was uh, circumcision. For us, it's baptism, but the lesson is the same. It's our identity rooted firmly in Jesus. Secondly, then they go and they celebrate the Passover. Now, for them, and for Jewish people ever since, even till today, the, the Passover is a celebration that remembers God saving his people from Egypt. It was the blood of the Passover lamb was placed on their homes so that death passed over their houses. For generations and generations, God commanded them to celebrate this um, commemorative meal together to remember God's faithfulness. For us, as Christians, Jesus redefined Passover in himself. Um, Jesus 
demonstrated himself to be the ultimate Passover lamb, that his blood covers all our sin and saves us from sin and death and, and from separation from God. It shows us how great God's love is and how great of a sacrifice that Jesus made for us. And so we celebrate communion, the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist. There's a lot of different names for it, but it's a very simple meal that remembers Jesus' sacrifice, that Jesus is the ultimate Passover. And I love the beauty of this sacrament. It's a shared meal. We all need it. Every one of us needs God's salvation. And we remember his saving work as we share it together. So we come forward all together. Everybody's on the same ground. Everybody needs the same. Nobody comes with a higher status or a lower status. We all need it just the same. And it's a regular remembrance. Not like baptism, which is a one-time thing that you may or may not even remember happening to you. But this is something that regularly here at this church, we once a month, we celebrate this together. Some churches every week, other churches every day, some less frequently, more frequently. But it's a regular observance. And it's such a powerful, simple act. that Because when you eat something, it becomes part of you, becomes part of your body. You take it in. And you're taking in um, what represents the body and the blood and remembering. Having God's salvation be so part of you in this way. So simple, so powerful. And that's what they were doing. Right before they went into battle, they were remembering eating a meal, remembering God's salvation. Uh, But notice here that as soon as they eat this meal, the manna stopped. Remember God, these people were wandering around and God provided them bread, but it stopped. Look at verse 11. It says, the day after the Passover, that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land, unleavened bread and roasted grain. The manna, verse 12, the manna stopped the day after they ate this food from the land. There was no longer any manna for the Israelites, but That year, they ate of the produce of the land of Cana. The beautiful thing with that is that God provided them bread, the manna, and it was okay. It sustained them. They didn't really like it. They complained about it, but but it was okay. So they ate ate the manna. But it was the manna was pointing to something even better: real bread, real provision. So God provided, and it's pointing to something even greater. So the manna pointed to the real bread, but as God is providing bread to his people, it's pointing to something even greater. It's pointing us to Jesus. And this is a conversation that Jesus had. This is from John chapter 6. So um, Jesus is, is talking about God's kingdom to a group of Jewish people. He, they, they asked him this. They asked him, what sign will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. They said, hey, this is great that you're talking about God's kingdom, but you know what God did for our ancestors? He made bread just appear that they could eat. It was a complete miracle. What are you going to do, Jesus, to demonstrate what God is doing in the world? And Jesus said this. Jesus said to them, very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven. But it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread, the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. What you just described, we want it. Give us that kind of bread. And Jesus then declared, I am the bread of life. 
Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Jesus said, of all the ways that God can provide for you, it's me. I'm the one who can truly satisfy your deepest hunger, your deepest longings, your greatest needs, your spiritual needs to give you life and to give it abundantly and eternally. The lesson for them and the lesson for us is that only God can provide and only God can satisfy. There are so many things in this world that we can seek after to to be successful, to satisfy us, to make us happy. And here Jesus said, the one thing that will truly satisfy is me. And every time we receive the elements of communion, the simple just taking a piece of bread and a little cup of juice, we remember the sacrifice that Jesus made to give himself to us that we might have this kind of life that can truly satisfy. Here we have God's people ready to enter battle and they stop and perform these these outward acts. It reminded them two things. One, it reminded them their identity as God's people and also it reminded them how God saved them and provided for them. So even though God's, you know, he's going to give them victory, he wants them to be spiritually ready. For us, God has given us outward signs of faith that we live out that help us be ready spiritually for whatever we're going to see in our day. Baptism reminds us of our identity with Jesus. Communion reminds us of God's salvation and that our greatest satisfaction in life is only found in him. And we're going to get to celebrate that together today. Pray that you will find your identity in Jesus and that you will find your satisfaction in God alone. Let us pray. So God, we thank you for these simple, these simple acts, these simple things that you've given us that point us to how profound your love is for us, your people. So God, help us to build our lives, our very identity in you, Lord. And there's so many ways, God, we try to prove ourselves and to build our lives and to, to find ourselves, but may we define ourselves in you first and foremost. And Lord, may we find our satisfaction in you, in your love and in your salvation. And we thank you that you've provided everything that we need to be satisfied, everything that we need to to be complete through Jesus Christ our Lord. So help us to always remember this. Help us to give you the glory with our lives and all that we do. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.